Welcome to the Disgruntled Rats podcast on Android development. Hi, and welcome to the Disgruntled Rats podcast for May 22nd, 2011. This is Mike Boldishar, and I'm joined today with Sean Godinez, Brian Morgan, and our special guest, John Carlson. John's uh, from the company Breakwater Incorporated, and he's going to give us a, a, sh- a short spiel on uh, cloud technology. So we're really excited to have him today, and uh, excited to let him talk about his technology, his company, and kind of a little bit about cloud computing, how it relates to mobile development, and that type of thing. So uh, let's start off with a quick update of events. Uh, for me, uh, not much has, has changed. I've been doing a lot of coding for uh, one of our new games that the Disgruntled Rats is uh, going to release, hopefully soon. Uh, can't tell you a lot about it yet because uh, it's still in development, but we'll hopefully get some screenshots up and some movies up on our website pretty soon to kind of show you guys what we're doing. Uh, it's it's going to be a really fun game, and I'm sure a lot of people will enjoy it. Uh, what have you been up to, Sean? Uh, I've also been working on this this game engine. I've been working on the AI parts of it. Um, other than that, I've just been uh, trying to enjoy the little good weather we've had out here in Minnesota. Brian? Same here. I've been trying to enjoy the weather as much as we can. Um, which was finally done, and I've been trying to pick up a little bit of 3D modeling, trying to figure out how to use Blender and Milkshape and how to uh, export those files into something we can put into a model viewer and then import to our games. So that's what I've been uh, wasting my time on. Yeah, John, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit and kind of talk about just at a high level what you're up to, what your company does, and we'll get more into the details at the end? Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh <clears throat> John Carlson with uh, Breakwater Systems Incorporated. I'm the uh, Chief Technical Officer. We're currently evaluating a lot of open source uh, cloud type uh, computing systems that we're going to try and use and remarket to uh, smaller companies. Uh, On the side, basically just trying to enjoy this new weather we got and raising kids. Congratulations, John. That's great. Okay, we're going to start off with an icebreaker here. The icebreaker question of the week is, if you woke up one morning and you were suddenly totally invisible, what would the first thing you'd do? What would be the first thing you'd do? Uh, let's see. If I were totally invisible tomorrow, I would probably, I, I don't know, go run down the road in my boxers and run to work and sit down on my computer and send emails to my boss, do my job all day, and people would wonder where I am and how he's sending emails. Uh, without being at work, and then after that, maybe I'd uh, oh, I don't know, go <laughs> cut the grass or something. You know, you got to get some work done around the house. It's still in your boxers, uh, though. Huh? Like you have yeah, floating my, boxers. My boxers. Yeah, you know, th- why not? I mean, no yeah, one can see me. They might think it's a little weird that my lawnmower's moving. You know, without my bo- <laughs> without anybody there. But uh, that would be my day, and then I'd probably watch some TV. Uh, how about you, Sean? What would you do? Um, yeah, I, that's a, it's tough. It's it's hard to say if I would do good or evil. I don't know. It's it's one of those things that to wake up and find myself invisible, and then uh, go from there. I'm not really sure. I think I I definitely strip down completely naked, but I have spare sets of clothes. I'm really start doing that, leaving spare sets of clothes at different areas of town. So in case I ever am naked during the day and it wears off, I can just run to those locations, 
throw my clothes back on, and no one will know the better. But yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's tough. I have to strategize on that. What do you think, Brian? That's that's good prior planning, Sean. I like that idea <laughs> because you never know uh, when it's gonna wear off. I suppose. Um, <laughs> I would, uh, you know, I'll pass by the old uh, <laughs> all, all, all the podcast inappropriate uh, things I'd, I'd do, but um, <laughs> we'll go straight to the. I would go into a bank, and as people were in line, um, I would poke them from behind, like in the side. And they would turn around and think it's the person behind them. And I would just instigate little fights like that. Because, you know, if you were standing there and somebody poked you, you'd turn around and, you know, they claim not to do it. And they did it six more times. I think it'd be interesting to see how the situation would develop. So I think I'd be a little bit nefarious. <laughs> I think it's interesting that you, you chose to do that at a bank of all places in case, you know, you had other options that you could do there, I guess, as well. If That's during the daylight hours. That might be... We'd go into Uptown and see what uh, happens. There you go. <laughs> How about you, John? I think in the morning I would definitely do the same kind of tomfoolery that you would be up to. I would I would, I would go around, you know, different circumstances. I like the uh, the lawn mowing itself kind of thing. You could do all sorts of things, you know. Go start a go-kart race with a cop with your car, nobody driving it, you know. But I think in the <laughs> afternoon I'd go after some of these large companies that I know are just screwing over people, like the oil companies. Just go sit in their meetings and hear, hear how these people's plans for world domination are going. And then, and then I just know, and I wouldn't, you know, sit at home not knowing and being mad anymore. <laughs> Would you be tweeting as you're invisible uh, about all these events, John? I don't know if I. Do. I'm not much of a tweeter. I should go okay, back and okay. say, though, that uh, when I was invisible, I wouldn't have to strip down naked because my clothes would be invisible, too, because that's just too much of a... If we're going we're gonna to stretch it, let's stretch it all the way. <laughs> well, great. Okay, so um, that's our icebreaker for all of you. Uh, if you'd like to comment and say what you would like to do if you're totally invisible, let us know. Um, <laughs> otherwise, we're going to move on to the news. So we're going to touch right now on computer graphics. Um, there was a survey of uh, game developer salaries done at cgw.com. Uh, it was a 2010 survey from all the different types of developers and their salaries. And it looks like the number one was uh, the business and legal employees that work in the game development industry, which is no real surprise there. Uh, for the salaried employees, they're averaging around 80000 a year. Uh, 55000 for independent contractors, which surprised me a little bit. And then for indie developers, it was about twenty-seven thousand. Um, quality assurance, quality control, i.e., game testers had around fifty thousand a year, which isn't too shabby if that's your job. Um, the other interesting note is that the average salary of all those employees across the board rose by approximately seven percent between two thousand nine and two thousand ten. So we all know that gaming is a booming industry, and this is just one more fact to support that. Um, I'm glad to see that the the um, programmer salary is up there in the 80s. That's good. I mean, that makes it um, more more likely for any any programmer to choose between whether they want to go into commercial gaming or uh, any other form of software in the industry. Yeah, I think that 80,000 mark was for all employees, even average for um, developers and for 
artists and that type of stuff because the artists mm-hmm. were still making pretty good money on the survey. So it's uh, it's just interesting that the salaries are going up in that area and there's going to be more work hopefully in the future for everybody. Uh, so would you guys have gone to college if you could have been a, a game tester and making $80,000 a year? Well, maybe <laughs> maybe they're looking for people that come out of college. So, I mean, if someone has a background in computer science and computer engineering or software engineering, they might make a better game tester than someone who didn't go to college just because they'd be able to describe what might be happening at a more technical level. Sure. And are we talking about potential debuggers as well as uh, testers? I mean, could they be going through the, you know, not only they could see a glitch visually represented in the game and then look at the code and then make, make modifications or changes based on that. That could be another thing too. I don't know if that's something they do or not, but it would make sense. Yeah, I guess I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to find out what these testers really do. So if you're a tester out there and you're listening to the podcast, uh, you should send us some feedback and tell us what your job really is and what your responsibilities are. I'd like to hear maybe somebody from a big company out there and what their experience is. So, yeah, send us some email at disgruntledrats.com. There's a link on there for our Gmail account. Yep, and if your name's Bob, um, you get a free T-shirt because then I can say, what would you say you really do here, Bob? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so all all software testers named Bob send us emails, and then Brian will send you t-shirts. <laughs> Amen. Okay, passing on to you, Mike, for the PhysX3.x uh, roadmap. Yeah, there's a, a roadmap out there. Uh looked like somebody was at a conference and took some pictures of a PowerPoint, but it, it showed the roadmap for Physics 3, uh, which is made by NVIDIA. And basically, the roadmap showed that physics is going, coming to Linux, Xbox, PlayStation, Android, and more. Uh, what this is, it's the uh, optimized hardware acceleration for parallel processors. So they, they call it on the website. Uh, basically a way, to, uh, <laughs> a way to do a lot of tasks in parallel relating to maybe physics calculations or floating point calculations. Uh, this this uh, code base offers CPU compatibility when the GPUs are not available. So what they're saying is, hey, if you don't have an NVIDIA chipset, you can still use your, your, G, your CPU, but it's not going to be very fast. Uh, well, at least you'll get something out of it, right? Um, but now this new platform, unlike the old ones, has uh, a single code base. So it's not different code bases for each platform. You'll be able to write the code once and use use it on all these different platforms, which is awesome. One thing that I like to see personally is some of this uh, physics, these physics engines rolled into the Android SDK so that you don't have to package them up yourself. Maybe they're built in um, to Android. I don't know how Google would like that or what the, the issues would be there with licensing, but I, I think that'd be really neat just to get some more open source built into the libraries. Yeah, that'd because, be nice. Ha- have any ideas? I'm wondering if that's not already ha- happening on Windows machines. I know if you play, like, I was playing Batman, uh, Dark Asylum, or, or the first game, uh, and that, that role, that had physics capabilities already uh, and being in- incorporated in the gameplay. So I don't know if that's part of DirectX packaging or if that was automatically downloaded with the Microsoft packages somehow, but... I think it'd be good for Android to throw that into their own into the SDK as well. Hmm. What, were you on a console, Sean? No, this is for PC. Um, 
Okay, okay. cool. Well, th- this article came from Geeks3D.com, posted by Jagax. So, I will move on to uh, Intel OpenCL, if you guys are ready. Hmm. Yeah, so uh, there's, these are two short articles about um, parallel computing APIs. So Intel is releasing their uh, OpenCL SDK, version 1.1. That's an article written by Jagex from Geeks3D. And they provide a sample code, and they, they basically provide support for Intel CPUs for OpenCL, which is which is an open uh, computer language framework for uh, doing processing on, on heterogeneous platforms. So you can run the same code on CPUs or GPUs, but basically it allows you to have a massively parallel system that executes functions on... Um, Either CPUs or GPUs, which so it's a pretty neat framework. It's competing with with CUDA right now, and and that kind of brings me to the next article. Also, is this uh, GPU accelerated Linux kernel? It's another article written by Jagex at Geeks3D, but uh, a group has decided to accelerate the Linux kernel using GPUs in, in CUDA on NVIDIA cards for network pro- packet processing, uh, cryptography, pattern matching, and uh, just basic algorithms like sorting and searching. The, the exciting things that are coming down the pipe there. Huh. So I wonder what kinds of things. Let's see. So cryptography. Uh, hmm. What else could they do with this uh, GPU acceleration in the kernel? I mean, it's not going to increase boot times or anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, how much acceleration are they really going to get out of this? That's. I don't know. Like. If Windows 7 integrates their Windows Media Player into into basically their kernel, like you can't you can't run Windows without Windows Media Player, um, this that would be huge there. So something similar in that aspect, Linux wants to optimize or or increase the performance of some package that they have that's built into the kernel. You would see that done on the GPU there. Something massive <laughs> like like video encoding and decoding things like that. I guess I could see the encrypted file systems being a huge plus. I mean, if you're if you want to encrypt your entire file system and it takes you know hours and hours and hours because you have many many gigabytes of data, uh, if you could do some of that calculation on your your GPU, that might be useful. Yeah. I don't think I'd ever encrypt my file system though, just because it's just not worth the risk. Yeah. <laughs> if you lose hey. your encryption key or something it goes wrong. <laughs> And this is just the start, too. I mean, sure, there's a lot of things out there that people don't realize. Hey, this would make great sense to, to accelerate on GPUs. Right, so who knows? We'll see. Okay, we're moving on to some Android news. Uh, Brian, you want to take it away? So in recent Android news, uh, at AndroidCentral.com, a gentleman by the name of Jerry Hildebrand um, wrote an article talking about how Google just blocked the, the rooted Android phones to protect their media content. So um, out of our 100,000 users or listeners, uh, I'm sure 999,000 probably know what rooted phones are, um, but for the 1,000 that don't, it's essentially the same as unlocked iPhone. So <clears throat> for all the iPhones uh, that are unlocked, they have a rooted Android phone, and for the ones that are rooted, they've uh, been blocked now. So when users try to uh, use the Android um, or Google's new movie rental service, they come up with a, a message that says failed to fetch license for, you know, the movie title, and then it's an error 49 when they try the service. And this is specifically for the phones uh, that had that rootkit installed. So the real question is, you know, has Google con- gone too far? Um, 
You know, are they going to get different treatment from other applications? Are they going to have sort of, you know, any monitoring uh, sort of software pushed to them to determine who's doing the rooting and further investigate that? Or, you know, obviously it's a step towards cracking down on the Android piracy and the content stealing, which we've covered earlier. But, uh, you know, has Google gone too far? Um, personally, I, I, I see what they're coming, see where they're coming from. I kind of, I'm not too hard on them for doing this. Um, you know, I don't know. What, what do you guys feel? Yeah, I think that's kind of a fair play on their part. Um, if they have movie titles that are downloaded to disk, for instance, uh, even if they're encrypted with DRM, somebody's going to find a way to decrypt them, and the movie companies aren't going to be very happy with that. And It's basically going to ruin it for everybody else. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible for somebody to get it off there anyway, even with, you know, the the non-rootkit capability, but uh, it's just something to keep in mind. Think things might change for those rooted phones in the future. Who knows what's going to happen? Other apps might see this as a threat as well, and that their content can be stolen as as people install these rootkits. So it might be a sign of things to come. Yeah, I think Google has to, to protect themselves and their assets, but uh, I think they would expect a lot of users to root their phones um, just because that's that's almost what the app Android platform's all about is how allowing people to go their own path and starts there with rooting your phone. So I think it's fair on their side. <laughs> I mean, if you want to install a different version of Android, you just get a different phone. You get a dev phone that you don't have to root, and that way you won't have to you know, deal with this problem. That's what they build the, the dev phones for. Netflix app is coming to Android. Actually, it already came to Android, and I installed it today. Pretty nice. cool stuff. Uh, there's an article written by Donald Melanson from Engadget.com. And he says that the Netflix release brings, um, well, brings a watch instantly features to mobile phones. Uh, the problem with it is, a lot of people are upset that it's only available for certain versions of Android phones, like the HTC Incredible, Nexus One, Evo 4G, which I have, and the G2. Oh, and also the Samsung ne Samsung Nexus S. Uh, <laughs> one of the cool things is that I finally found a use for my HDMI port on my phone. <laughs> you know, I've had this thing here forever, and I'm like, well, what are we going to do with an HDMI port on a phone? Well, finally, it's like, oh, well, I can go plug this into a TV and turn Netflix on and watch a streaming video right from my phone, which is it's going to be kind of cool. I hope it works. That's good, because you can't get it through the PSN network anywhere, the PlayStation network anymore, so there you go. <laughs> what PlayStation network? <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's really cool. I think that's great. You know, that's, a fun, that's a fundamental reason for buying one of these phones now, is you can get the Android app, like you said, Mike, Go to any computer with an H HDMI input. As long as you have your uh, your cable, it doesn't have to be a 20-foot cable either. You just plug it into your phone, plug your phone in the wall, stream a movie. I mean... Yeah, yeah the thing is, I, the thing that's going to be bad is these carriers are going to see the network usage spike now. Because people are going to be watching these, phone, these videos on their phones all the time. And so then they're going to just maybe eliminate unlimited data plans. We have a, another article 
next, actually, about about a company <laughs> doing this, but uh, it, it, <laughs> I think it might kind of ruin it for everybody, and all of a sudden you have these data caps because Netflix, they get blamed for everything on the internet now. They're like, oh, Comcast and all these companies are mad that they eat up so much of the bandwidth as people stream the videos, so... And these cell phone networks don't have that kind of bandwidth, you know, for everybody to be streaming videos all the time. They're just going to get bogged down and, and slow down. So we'll see how the the content uh, the carriers can handle the, the demands on their network with this stuff. Yeah, so that, I guess it comes into the next article where we talked, touched on a lot of it. Um, Verizon is shutting down their unlimited data plan. So this summer, Verizon will eliminate uh, their $30 unlimited data plan. We'll start doing the, the tiered server plans. AT&T started this trend last summer, and uh, that Verizon's a follow. I'm sure everyone else is going to follow next, too. And that's, um, I don't know, it's hopefully they grandfather people in that already have that. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, AT&T started this. It was kind of a big media event. Uh, obviously, one of the best things was to have, you know, you pay a flat free, you get unlimited data. But then, like we noticed in the modern uh, sort of digital landscape of America and the world, the videos and the movies and the streaming, um, the data, is, the loads are much higher. So with that uptick, obviously, they said, well, you know, we're charging the same, but we're doing six times as much bandwidth for all our customers. You know, we should probably start thinking realistically about this in our business model. So they adjusted to that, and now it looks like Verizon's following suit. You know, Verizon, one of their big uh, selling points when AT&T did this was, well, you know, we don't do that, so come with <laughs> us. And now it looks like they're falling in the same hole. So I, I think it's going to be a standard across the whole um, entire provider landscape here, probably if it's not already. So what do you think, Mike? Yeah, I listened to the Java Posse podcast the other day, and they were all really upset when T-Mobile got bought by AT&T. They, all those guys bought T-Mobile phones, and they're super <laughs> excited about it and getting away from AT&T. And, uh, all of a sudden, they get bought, and now they're stuck with this contract and with AT&T. And, uh, you know, it, as we lose the companies and lose the options, uh, I think we lose a lot of the service as well. So... Uh, just <laughs> hope Sprint doesn't try to do the same thing, because I'd be pretty upset. <laughs> oh, great. So the Evo 3D um, is pre-orders. Uh, we can do some specs here. The processor is an MSM8660, uh, 1.2 gigahertz dual-core processor. The operating system is going to run Android 2.3 with, with uh, HTC Sense. Four gigabytes of eMMC internal memory, um, and then one gigabyte RAM, then a 4.3 inch Super LCD with a max resolution of 540 by 960 QHD resolution 3D display. Uh, one of the great things is the 3D compatibility. It's 3D capture and playback for photos and videos. Uh, display downloaded content formatted in 3D. Stream 3D content wirelessly to your 3D TV. So it has two cameras, and that's what's used to capture the stereoscopic 3D image. Nice. Um, it's pretty awesome. You know, if you think about it, the, the ability to take a 3D photo on your on a little gadget like that and then put it on your 3D TV, uh, it's, it's going to, I think it's going to do some serious changing of the, the whole market in that sense. That's a great idea. That's really cool. 
What's the uh, capture rate? Is it can you s can it capture like 720p from three cameras or two cameras at the same time? Yeah, I don't know about that. That's a good question. So There'd be a lot of data processing code, but yeah, that's pretty cool. I like that. I suppose it's got dual core, right? Maybe it's got two DSPs. I don't know. Yeah, I remember um, I was in a class at the U and we had a professor named Joe Constan, and he he was predicting the future of cameras, saying that you know they're going to be able to have multiple um, multiple cameras on these things, and see so you don't have to be a very skilled photographer to take pictures because it'll take them from different depths because you'll have so many different cameras integrated into a single device. And imagine what you could do if you had you know 50 cameras and you could do more than 3D. You could capture different depths. You could create a reconstruct a 3D scene that was um, had high resolution at uh, any distance, so you could <laughs> zoom into the scene, look around, right. and and see all kinds of detail. So it's kind of exciting for the future. I mean, you're going to get amazing amounts of detail in these these images you're going to be taking. Well, what do you do with them? How do you show them off? What kind of tools do you use to edit, you know, 3D scenes? Um, it's going to be some some challenges. And what do you do with like forensic analysis on all these camera images when you have just gigabytes of data that's that construct 3D scenes? So it's going to be impossible. <laughs> that's cool. So anyway, uh, next up is uh, the de details of ice cream sandwich uh, at the Google I/O conference. Uh, they announced the new Android operating system, Ice Cream Sandwich. And there's an article by Trent Novio. Sorry, we're really bad at pronouncing names. Uh, I apologize. But in t at tjdaily.com, he's talking about uh, the fact that this version of the operating system merges in honeycomb features with uh, the smartphone features. And it's one operating system instead of two. So what that allows us to do is develop code for one platform that you can run on tablets and on phones and it's going to make uh, life easier for a lot of developers. Uh, it's too bad they couldn't have done this earlier and not had two different versions but uh, it seems like a pretty good compromise and the ice cream sandwich will be available in fourth quarter 2011. Good deal. All right, on to uh, 3D modeling. Walt Disney is open sourcing two software programs, uh, which is called Reposado. It's a set of tools written in Python that replicate the key functionality of the Mac OS servers and software update service. Uh, also, um, SCXPR is a simple expression language that will be used to provide artistic control and customization to core software. So it's pretty neat that they're releasing these two tools to the public. Yeah, they're the last company I would expect to start open sourcing tools, but it's it's kind of neat. I hope they continue on that path. Hopefully they can give out some of their better technologies or contribute to older things they're not using anymore. Um, <laughs> you know, they're the probably the, one of the experts at creating 3D models and making videos out of them, and, and so hopefully this is... Uh, a good start to future of embracing open source. Yeah. Uh, moving on to gaming here, we've got a free free Xbox with uh, laptop purchases um, if you're a student. 
So if you go to hp.com, dell.com, Best Buy, or Microsoft stores, uh, and you buy a laptop that's $700 or greater, and you have an EDU address, um, you get a free Xbox 360 if you buy that laptop. The console currently has a $200 retail value, and it only runs to September 3rd, um, and it is incredibly awesome if you're a college student. That's pretty nice. It's the four gigabyte version of the console, but I mean that's still it's two hundred dollars. You can just buy the extra hard drive you you need for that. It's pretty awesome. Does that mean they're trying to get rid of their inventory for something? I wonder if they're coming out with a new console soon. Hmm. Yeah. I guess if we look at look dig down a little deeper, there's probably a reason why they're doing it. So. I think it it's also good timing with the whole Sony fiasco. People are irritated by that. They were looking for an excuse to buy. You know, any excuse to get over to maybe Microsoft Xbox to play games again. So that's it's not a hard sell. If you tell your mom you need a new computer for school, get yourself an Xbox in the process. You got it. Do any of you guys own Xboxes? Yeah. yeah. I've got a PS3 and an Xbox and a Wii. And no time to play any of them. <laughs> yeah, we have an Xbox here, but same thing. Okay. I own zero consoles. <laughs> For the same reason. I don't have any time to play them. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. On to stopping virtual pirates. Arg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, article on CNETnews.com. Uh, let's see. The U.S. Navy was supposed to launch what they called a massively multiplayer online war game leveraging the internet. M-M-O-W-G-L-I on May 16th. (laughs) (laughs) I checked the website just today to see what was going on. It was supposed to be released, but it wasn't released yet. I I signed up for it, so maybe they'll send me an email or or I'll disappear to play the game for eternity. Who knows? Mm. Uh, (laughs) The website isn't active, but the idea behind this is to have a thousand people solve real-world problems faced by the Navy. Uh, it has a lot of social aspects to the game. Players are vote on solutions and, and build upon each other's ideas. Uh, so they're trying to think outside of the box and see what other people would come up with to, to stop a lot of these pirate pirating activities. Uh, what, what do you guys think about uh, the military coming up with um, online games to to come up with ideas. Is, that, is this a good idea? Is this something that's going to work for them? I personally Tough. think it will. <clears throat> this is John, by the way. Uh, it's kind of like phone a friend on uh, who wants to be a millionaire, isn't it? Only, yeah, only, I guess. <laughs> only you got a thousand friends, which is pretty cool. <laughs> so the Navy's going to like see what the gamers do, if they should launch nukes or not? What, what do you guys decide? <laughs> Are they going to use this as kind of like a networking thing? So, okay, there's a we think there's a pirate ship here, or I mean, because obviously the Navy has war games in place to you know according to the rules of engagement, international law. I mean, they're not going to launch an attack based on what a bunch of gamers think. So, what's the real goal here? Are they trying to? I don't understand the goal is to stop sea-based piracy, but how will this impact that? Um, John, it sounds like you were kind of leading to what you thought it might be with the phone a friend thing. I mean, is this the idea to have a bunch of ships in the area go, hey, we think there's pirates over here, and, you know, 
Is that kind of what they're doing? Well, or? they'd almost have to have their course of action built already and then just go with uh, whatever percentage of these thousand people, you know, whatever the, the largest group is, they'd go with that. And, you know, they're going to figure out right away if this works or not. I mean, they're not going to say, I don't think they'll put up a button that says, do we nuke Somalia? <laughs> yes or no. <laughs> It'd be funny if they did. Could be a big recruiting tool as well. Like, this is this is what we do in the Navy all day long. We just play video games to solve our problems and sign up. Sign up for it's, six. <laughs> from the article, it sounded like they wanted people who are very professional, like uh, people who are academically accredited and people who were um, had knowledge in these areas and they wanted to w- get them to work together to solve the problem and so it was kind of an, an exclusive group hmm. I, I signed up for it I'm sure I won't get an email back but it's it's interesting I wonder what kind of problems they'd solve I mean do you put a bunch of uh, pirates on a ship and say well how do we save the hostages is that is that the type of question that you'd you'd ask these people that's kind of what I was thinking. It, it could also be a kind of an open source aspect to it. Say they they know that they're going to be driving a ship through there at this time. Well, you get a thousand people that know how to use Google, know how to use chat rooms, and say some of them know how to speak Somalian. All of a sudden, they're online, and they're going, hey, I just saw that whatever this dude, Muhammad Ali, whatever, is getting 13 RPGs together because he heard there's a ship coming, you know, and they could, you know, Uh-oh. tip them off. You know, that could be one aspect of it. Huh. Huh. Yeah, be interesting to see. They're already blown past the release date, so um, I don't know. I already have low hopes. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, the Xperia Play is coming next week uh, from TGDaily.com. The Sony Ericsson Xperia is finally going to be released on uh, the Verizon Network May 26th. It's a phone-based gaming device, so instead of a keyboard, there's going to be a gamepad. Um, it's made to play Sony games. It costs about $200 with a two-year contract, and it's not 4G compatible. Um, we couldn't find much information on how to use the Xperia control APIs, so uh, if they're only available for the Sony games, then the devices, we don't, we don't hold it in high regard. Um, question is, you know, is this the future of mobile gaming? Are parents going to pay for gaming data plans plus the cost of games? Uh, we'll, we'll see. I'm sure some will, um, but we'll see if enough do to make this a successful endeavor. Yeah, I think it's going to be tough to break into mobile gaming as something with a new, completely new um, platform. Especially when, like, you just buy a phone right now and you, got, you have mobile gaming on basically any phone you, you, you purchase these days. The new ones is this is the new PSP is supposed to is basically a phone running Android. Um, That's this. This is the new. This is the new one then, huh? Yeah, this okay. is Sony's new platform. Okay. Yeah, the issue, like it, like you said, was that well, how do you control these game pads? I don't think that stuff's built into to Android already. And if it's only available for Sony, man, that would be a real kick in the gut. I don't know. As a developer, you'd have to use the touch screen, just like a, a different device. You wouldn't be able to use the main controls. Yeah, as a, as a parent, I don't know, John, would you buy these things for your, for your kids, these uh, devices? I don't know. I, I think uh, we're getting into the era of people having 
too much going on with their phone. I don't know. Maybe too distracting. Maybe till they're done with school. Maybe I'd give it to them afterwards. I don't know. Yeah, it's quite costly to have a data plan. Yeah, absolutely. If it's on the Verizon network, especially if they're downloading a game a day at two or three hundred meg. Yep. Okay. I've uh, I composed uh, an article here. Basically, it's kind of the story of what's been happening with Sony over the last year. As uh, I'm talking with with some friends over the last month, and there's just details that um, not everyone's aware of. So I put together a little timeline here. I'm going to go over. And this is this is all about Sony. So back in 2010, on January 22nd, uh, George Hotz announced uh, he successfully hacked the PS3, gaining hypervisor level permissions. And hypervisor is this layer that Sony had put in place on their PS3s that prevented users from accessing certain hardware and, and the kernel uh, ring zero access. Basically, and, and on January 26th, Hotz released the exploit to the public. And this hack required the other OS support, so basically Linux support. And on March 28th, Sony announced that they were no longer supporting Linux for the PS3, and this is almost directly related to the fact that they didn't want to try and prevent all these hacks from taking place. And so their next update patch would remove the other OS feature. And then two days later, George Hotz announced that he would deliver a hack to maintain the other OS support. So they're kind of going back and forth there. And I think it was that moment that... Uh, George also started recognizing that he should probably lay low for a while and actually not keep publicizing the fact that he was he was hacking into the PS3. So we didn't really hear much from him until um, this year, January 2nd, 2011, Hotz posted uh, root keys for the PS3. And then on the 6th of January, he also uploaded some videos showing homebrewed applications running on the PS3's latest firmware, 3.55. And then uh, on the 11th of January, Sony filed a temporary restraining order against Hotz and also um, uh, attempting to start to go down the path of suing him. And on the 27th of January, the, the courts granted this uh, restraining order and they started, court started filing that, mandating that servers release IP addresses for everyone there that downloaded this, this crack that Hotz had put online. And on April 11th, uh, Sony announced that they'd settled out of court with again with uh, George Hotz and he was no longer he agreed to no longer hack any of Sony's hardware and then shortly after that on April 20th Sony realized that a network breach had taken place where 77 million users personal data was stolen and Sony shut down their PlayStation network and their Curiosity services and then on the 29th the class action lawsuit was filed against Sony for disabling the other OS support claiming a breach of sales contract and breach of the covenant of good faith and fair dealing and then on May 6th, uh, security expert Dr. Gene Spafford, computer science professor at Purdue University, testified before a congressional subcommittee that Sony used a version of open source Apache web server that went unpatched and had no firewalls installed. So basically, uh, Sony didn't have any security in place. And on May 15th, Sony began to restore their PlayStation network. This is about a month later after they shut it down. And only after three hours, they realized that they had a huge vulnerability, so they ended up shutting down the PlayStation Network. It only opened up to about a small group, maybe 50% of users, uh, before they had to shut it all back down. And just uh, on May 19th, they announced that they were going to launch a $70 PlayStation Network premium account at E3, for everyone that's um, interested in that. And then uh, the 20th, Sony's Sonet was breached, resulting in customer loss of virtual currency, only like a couple grand worth, 
And then just yesterday, a credit card phishing site was found that was being hosted on some of Sony's servers. So that's kind of the last year in there on on just the craziness of Sony attacking one uh, hacker, basically trying to make an example of him, and how it's over the last month they've lost millions and millions of dollars in, in users, including, like, users no longer want to play or use a PS3. They can't use a PS3 anymore. And this is just a huge... Uh, mess that they've gotten themselves into. So that was kind of a long one, but what do you guys think? No, the hack that this guy set out there was, was just to run a different operating system, right? Wasn't it was, that what he was yeah, hacking? Yeah, it, it allowed users to continue to use Linux on their PS3s. Because a lot of people bought a PS3 um, for research and development, and mainly they wanted use of the cell broadband processor. And so they wanted to run Linux on it, which was what Sony basically said you could do, you buy a PS3, you can run Linux on it, you can have access to these um, the cell broadband and um, then they just took it away and so Geohot that's his, his alias, he said well I, I can help you guys out, I'll give you it back <laughs> and then uh, Sony basically um, went after him for that but in the, in the, I guess in another, another thing, the reason they went after him is because when you when you do that, you you have root access. You can basically you can then start pirating, and there's it opens the door to a lot of other things. But um, I don't know. That's there's good and bad yeah. to all of it. Imagine if they would have taken a different direction and instead of attacking this guy, maybe worked with him to support Linux or other operating systems and still stop piracy. I mean, they could have the best of both worlds. They don't have to necessarily you know, go after him, shut him down, and sue him. They could have realized that there was a real demand for this and embed good stewards of their systems and, and helped out this community of developers who are probably very vocal and had a lot of support behind them. Uh, I mean, obviously. <laughs> you just can't, you can't shut down people like this. People who are, who are interested in, in working on your products and obviously see a lot of value in them. They're the people that you want to uh, be writing good things about your company. You, yeah, <laughs> they these guys shot are, themselves in the foot here. These guys are working for free. I mean, they're working because they like to do it. This is something that they have an interest in. So, I mean, that's their love of technology that gets them into this areas anyway. So it's hard to shut something like that down. Right, and and now, I mean, so many websites are always attacked with denial of service. You, I've tried shopping for laptops before and seen their sites extremely slow, crawling as as people are attacking them, and it's just it's just bad for them, bad publicity, and just bad for their company in general. I'm sure they're losing a ton of money right now. Yeah, well, you see, like even with the um, like May twentieth thing, there were they hacked Sonet. And stole only a couple thousand dollars. That's I think it sounds like any hacker who's bored out there and disliked what Sony did to to GeoHot, they're now looking at taking a stab at uh, Sony, see what they can do. Yep. Thanks for that article, Sean. That was a long one. Yeah, long-winded. Guess oh. what? You're up next. Oh, yeah, that's true. All right, so this is a short one. This is just a uh, it's a neat article I found about adding reflection to C++. And that's much like Java has reflection and other languages have reflection. Uh, you can It's a fast and efficient way of doing it. And this was posted on Gama Sutra. Uh, it was an article written by Geoff Evans. But it basically teaches you how to uh, write your own RTTI and uh, your reflection in an efficient manner. 
so you can make your make the C++ language more versatile and um, modular and easier to use and change things down the road in your games. I would recommend checking it out. So could you explain that a little bit more? What, what does this mean for developers? Well, if they, um, you know, if you want your data-driven modeling, really, so C++ doesn't really have a way of looking at itself, other than there's there's an RTTI, like a runtime um, indexing thing that basically labels each object with an ID and a name, so you can you can dynamically cast it to find out what type of object it is. That's about as far as you can go. And what it does is it, when you enable RTTI, it does that for all objects. So it's, it loads in, takes up a lot of memory. So the way this route's going is that it, you're, um, you're rewriting it so that you're only using it for specific objects. You don't care that all your objects have this capability. You only want it for specific ones that are part of your data-driven model. And then you can basically ask, well, the reflection part comes in, and you can, you can find out what type of object you are as you're and perform actions off of that. So you can look up, look into your own object and yourself, basically, and see what functions you have and, and what data you have, and things like that. Yeah, I use reflections a lot in Java. And it's pretty powerful for doing things like uh, loading data in from files and uh, dynamically figuring out how to map attributes from uh, data files into objects in the domain. So it's kind of cool that they are, they're doing something like that for C++. Yeah, it's neat. Okay, we're getting into the spotlight portion of our show. Uh, this is where John Carlson's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, cloud computing. We're going to ask him some questions and, and uh, just kind of do some pretty informal discussions. Uh, John, do you do you want to start out start off with anything, an introduction, or should we go into some questions? No, I'd like to start out with an introduction and maybe just kind of lay what I believe cloud computing is before we go into the questions. Uh, if you didn't hear it earlier, my name's John Carlson. I'm the chief technical advisor for uh, Breakwater Systems Incorporated, which is a small company that's that's going to use uh, the cloud computing slash uh, consolidation of network uh, power to do some sort of function that we're going to sell to customers. We've, we've actually gone back and forth over straight cloud computing uh, versus hosted uh, hosted desktops, and we're kind of finding our niche might be in uh, disaster recovery continuity of operations. Uh, so I'm going to start out with uh, what is cloud computing to me? Basically, it, it just means you've, you've, you've consolidated software somewhere. There's, there's all sorts of clouds. There's private clouds. There's public clouds. Uh, people run clouds right out of their house where they use some stuff called like a software as a service. Uh, there's two types when I when I look it up. There's called hosted and bare metal. A hosted cloud, or not, I'm sorry, a hosted. Yeah, uh, I guess you could call it a cloud, but I'm. It's kind of a hypervisor. Is uh, where you say you're running like a Windows OS or a Linux OS and you're going to run a program on that that allows you to run virtualized applications like a whole operating system or maybe just one small set of uh, software. Uh, a type of host it would be like uh, Windows 2008 or Linux. And then there's also the bare metal type, which is what people commonly call uh, VMware, which isn't really an operating system in itself. It's just uh, a set of instructions that exist between the hardware of the system and 
go to the hosted operating systems and, and give each hosted operating system time slices on the memory, hardware, or, or hard drive, and uh, CPU. An example of a hosted, it'd be like Amazon, and uh, a bare metal is, is, is a VMware. Uh, Windows Azure is another kind of uh, hosted application. So with that, I'll uh, let you begin with your questions. Okay, so so which form of that service are you guys working on uh, offering in your at your company? Currently, right now, we've we've gone to the VMware because we're going to set up for the disaster recovery where we want to do what's called a P to V image, which which is you take a physical and you go to a virtual image of any kind of uh, hosted operating system. You can load the VMware tools on a Linux, a Windows system. And you click a couple of buttons, and it'll copy off a current snapshot of that system to a virtual image. And what it's doing is it's replacing all the drivers for your your bus, your network adapters, your video with a common like VMware driver. So when it, that image, which is a straight VMDI or VMDK file, gets to your VMware server and it pulls it up, it's going to take and paste back in and bind your IP addresses without uh, throwing a lot of errors at you. We have tried the uh, the uh, Amazon Cloud. That's actually uh, run off what's called Ubuntu uh, Eucalyptus. And it, that was kind of a cool one. As, as it was hosted, you actually had to load all the operating systems and configure them for networking before you went and tried pasting the, uh, the hosted OSs on top of them. And we only got a few of those to work, and they were other Linux builds. We never got a Windows image to actually run, even though it was supposed to be capable of doing that. Very cool. So you're you're talking about disaster recovery now. So uh, your customer wants to have a backup system, basically, and in case their servers go down, that they can fail over to your site. Is that is that what you're thinking? Correct. Uh, we we've done a couple different scenarios. You know, say customer A has a a file server at their location, and they got about 25 users. Uh, let's say quarterly we go and we build that P2V image of his server. And then I also build a Windows terminal server which allows remote desktop access and I load that terminal server with all of the applications our company uses. Say they use Office, they use QuickBooks, they use some kind of a other business system interface. That way if there's a disaster, flood, tornado, electrical power outage that they know won't be back on for four or five days, we can fire up those two images of the server with all their data. It might be a quarter old, but that's up to them and depending how much they want to pay and how often they want to do those P2V images. But then they can fire up that server and they can fire up that terminal server and they can log into it either from their homes or from, you know, maybe they rent a, a an office from a hotel. They get some laptops from Best Buy and they're up and running again. That way they're, uh, they're able to just, you know, continuity of operations. They're not going to have their latest data if they're doing it quarterly. But they are going to have, you know, they can still add invoices, or if they've got some knowledge, they can maybe recreate some past invoices for a customer. Well, that's cool. I like that idea. Nice to have have a backup of your system. You can switch on at the uh, turn of a dime or immediately. We actually, uh, when I used to work for a company called Data Smart Computers, we the the guy I worked for built something like this. What we did is the uh, the bank was running a Novell server, an SQL server, and a couple other servers that were taking in checks and electronic transfers. 
And what we do is every night at nine o'clock, we would start a tape backup. This is back when you know a hundred gig was big, and we'd back up to an LTO drive. And in the morning at about seven, we'd go grab that drive and drive it three cities over, and start restoring it to an identical stack of servers. That way, you know, if anything happened at that bank that day, they'd be up and going. That was very expensive, but that banker had, must have had some kind of a deal with those uh, people that thought the world was going to end the other day. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. We'll, we'll jump into some of these questions here, John. Uh, so what's the biggest challenge to cloud computing that you foresee? Is it security? Uh, is it buy-in from customers? Or what do you think? I tell you, security with cloud infrastructure is, is very... you got to be really, really smart about this stuff because uh, it, it, with this public and private, on the Amazon system, you have two IP addresses, if not more, for each system, but you always have a, a private IP address. That's the, the back end that uh, hopefully people out on the Internet can't see. And that IP address talks to the other internal IP addresses of each of your systems so they can talk back and forth in the background without being on the outside of the network. Uh, then you also have the public IP addresses, which you could have one or many depending on what kind of virtual apps it's running. At the same time, if you're running any kind of financial ATM uh, application or if you're processing credit cards, you have to build parallel systems that talk to each other through a firewall so that, that stuff can't be compromised. And uh, if you're trying to set up for this stuff, it's just a great big headache. You got to draw great big maps, and you got to know how everything's going to talk, and uh, how the system's going to expand. If uh, if you get too much being thrown at you, how it's going to ask for more processor power? How, when it adds another system in and it adds another IP address, is it going to route back and forth through those firewalls and stuff? That, that's to me, that's going to be a lot of problems. But there's people out there that that are probably going to have to adapt to it until somebody writes enough code to make it so they can just do it with a couple of clicks. Uh, social buy-in, uh, I think it'll, I think everybody would probably nod and say, yeah, cloud sounds like a good thing right now because everybody's been touting it. Microsoft with their commercials and stuff like that. I, I'm guessing most people won't know what the heck it is, but they'll, they'll buy into it. Uh, money. Okay. I, I've got some other stuff written down here. I'm just trying to get myself back in balance. Uh, the Ubuntu cloud system, if you want to host that, like you want to actually have the physical servers and load that cloud system and sell it, uh, I called to get hooked up with how much it was going to cost to license it, and it was $400 per core. Not per processor, but per core. So when you want to give somebody the ability to, you know, run their application on a super amount of cores, it's going to get really expensive. I looked at what I had, and I have a really small stack of computers, and it was going to be something like, you know, $10,000 just to license those, which is one of the reasons we kind of went away from the Ubuntu system. Uh, also, right now, software licensing, like from Microsoft and from companies like uh, SCO, uh, Santa Cruz Operations, uh, with their COBOL licenses, really hard to figure out how you would license this stuff in the cloud, and they're going to have to get way advanced here pretty quick, or else they're going to be losing money or we're going to have people getting systems shut down or sued because they're not using stuff within license compliance. Hmm. I never thought about licensing problems, but I suppose when you have any number of virtual machines, you have to track licenses, and it's going to be more difficult when they're not 
you know, physical machines that are near you. They're out in the cloud somewhere. Exactly, but it's something you got to think about, or else somebody will show up at your door wanting to audit you. Yeah. Okay, so, oh, you ready for another question? Absolutely. Okay, dog. Uh, jump around a little bit here. Uh, we're into mobile development here on this podcast. How how do you think uh, mobile development fits into cloud computing? What have, have you done any research on that, or or do you have any ideas on what developers might be using the cloud for 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 phones or or for tablets? Uh, I haven't done a lot of research on this, and I'm not much of a developer person. I'm more of a hardware than a software guy. But I gotta say, it's gotta have to work because there's all these cool applications out there that are taking your data, storing it somewhere, and uh, they've got to be redundant out there. So if the app goes to run and you've paid your 99 cents or your 9.99 for it, it has to work all the time, or you're gonna get mad. I, I really can't see the only cloud type thing I could see is that the, the system itself runs on some kind of a hypervisor that runs in between the Android or the iOS software and the actual hardware on the phone, which makes it easier for them to write software because if it's uh, the same kind of hypervisor from phone to phone, it'll just work and it'll just have access to more CPU or more memory time. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, you know, as a developer, things that I want to store in the cloud are things like high score tables or or information about user accounts uh, because I don't necessarily want to keep track of that um, on the mobile devices and have them synchronized somehow. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be a challenge, and and it's just uh, <laughs> pretty interesting stuff. Uh, one thing that I've always been concerned about is what happens to these cloud computers when, when companies... Uh, go belly up or there's a problem or they want to change direction. Uh, For instance, there was a big controversy over Google Wave a while ago. It wasn't a cloud service per se, but they created a a social networking site basically where you can discuss and and, uh, work together to uh, solve problems and it was kind of like a forum style type of thing, but they they basically took all the content that people developed over time, all the information people stored into Google Wave, and then they said, well, we're not supporting it anymore. <laughs> so what happens when the cloud computing platforms say, well, we just can't, we're not profitable or we're not making enough money anymore. What do we, how do we get data back to people or what's the, the failover plan or how, how can people trust these companies, I guess? That's a good question. You're gonna to have to look at their their contract when they start it. I myself, I would, you know, I always keep backups of data, and if they want it, they'd get it. A company like Amazon, I don't know how they would even plan to get data to people. They're probably dealing with many, many thousands of terabytes, and it's not like they can have a guy that goes through one by one and copies everything to a memory stick and sends it to people. I think you'd want nice. to be very, very wary of your data and maybe keep backups of it find a way to suck down your image or instance or whatever it is running in there and you also password protect it away from Amazon if there's a way to do that so that they can't take your work and use it as their own that's a really good question it's probably going to come out here at some point when somebody has something go wrong yeah it sounds like it's kind of up to the the developers or the people using the services to protect their own data right now and use it at your own risk. I just don't think most people realize that, that there is there is some risk there and that they should be doing things to protect their data. 
Exactly. I, I myself, I hate letting anybody else have access to my, my data. That's why I wanted to run my own stack of servers and keep my email server and my web server and everything in-house so that I don't have to worry about somebody else just deciding, nope, we're done with that. Because really, even though you may have legal recourse, it's a lot of a hassle to hire a lawyer to go after somebody if it's not really going to net you much money or get something back. Yep, yep. You guys want to ask a question? Brian, Sean? I've been handling pretty well, Mike. <laughs> okay. I'll just keep going down the list. Here we go. Uh, so, are there any lessons learned from Amazon's catastrophe in the cloud, John? Uh, things that you're going to think about going forward? They have a little bit different setup than I think you you will in your company, but um, anything, lessons learned, anything you'd like to share? Well, I read that article, and uh, I tell you what, they didn't have a good backup plan. Uh, a company that large is good at selling stuff. <laughs> the fact that they created this large Amazon crowd was kind of interesting in the first place, but I think it was to take care of themselves. With their large influence over the sales market, they had to be able to grow you know, for, like, uh, for the holiday seasons, for Christmas. They needed probably 10 times the server space or the computing power than they did during a lull on the thing in the in the in the summer. I'm guessing that's why they built it. Now they have a lot of smart people to build it, but they didn't think it all the way through and I'm looking at it and I think their backup plan was a little bit flawed. You you have to uh if you're really going to back somebody up, if you're going to secure somebody's data and write a contract that says you will not lose it or you're going to have your million dollars of liability out the window, you have to set it up by geographic reason or uh and terrestrial slash space connectivity like you have to have a satellite dish that's connected to the internet as well as your fiber or your DSL running out of your office so that if anything gets cut you're still up and going also you're probably going to want to have farms that are in different stages say like one patch back so that if uh, a patch causes a problem you can shut down that farm and have the other farm go you know take it out of the cluster so that you have continuity of operations yeah, I think that they just got bit by that problem of distributed computing and all the challenges that go along with it. When you when something goes down and you fail over, well, it doesn't always work out. You know, things don't always fail over gracefully, um, and machines aren't always behaving as planned. So, yeah, I don't I don't know. It's a it's a tough problem to solve, especially with, with testing too. I mean, is there any kind of failover testing that you can do, John, in the cloud to to make sure that stuff like that doesn't happen? You can. It would probably take you almost as much time to write the program <laughs> to test it because you can't just take two of them you know, and have one or two people accessing it and then you shut down one and see what happens. When you're talking about something on the scale of Amazon, you'd have to have almost uh, the something to the scope of a denial-of-service attack to see what happens, uh, which they should do if they're going to offer a product for that kind of a, a price with that kind of security. They need to do that. They need to get a million machines, not a million machines, but a million uh, hits going at a time and then try and fail it over between two sites. That's just the way it is. Yep, yep. So I think one of the last questions we have here is, you know, how do you provide support for people in the cloud or, or for customers, um, maybe on a small scale or even a, on a large scale? What is your your contract with your customers? How, how are you guys going to work on that problem? Well, the nice thing about the cloud is most uh, 
most of the software runs with like a counter, and it's going to tell you how many hours of uh, of time and how much bandwidth has been used by a certain customer based by their instances. It's going to tell you how many processor cores they were using or how many processors, how many gigs of memory, how much hard drive time, and how much uh, bandwidth or data was transferred back and forth, uh, which is really nice for your for the owner of the company because you're going to get that report and you can send out that invoice. It's also nice for the person using it because using the cloud instead of using your own system is you're, you're not paying for electricity, you're not paying for a T1 or an OC3 or a fiber line. You're paying for exactly what you use. So you don't have to drop a 10 meg uh, type line into your back of your building and pay for it for the whole month when, say, only 20% of the day is anybody using your systems. As far as support, uh, probably down where I'm at and the customers we're going to get it first with the cloud, we would probably load the software as a service system, give it IP address, and monitor it using a program like Nagus, and they would probably just log into it using an SSH like a PuTTY or something like that, and they would download and install the software they're going to run. Uh, large, oh, we'd also probably patch and upgrade that, that software for them and let them know when, when there's upgrades to the software and give them justification as to whether they should or should not go to that software, whether it will increase performance or not. Large companies we would probably just give them the password to their own uh, instance manager and they would go in there and do what they want and we would just check the uh, the log at the end of the month and see how much processor time and bandwidth they use and send them the bill. As long as we keep that system up and running, uh, they're, they're going to be happy. You know, 99.9% .9 uptime with good bandwidth so customers aren't getting slow websites. Very cool. But well, what do you do when a customer just doesn't understand the cloud or you know <laughs> barely knows how to turn on their computer and they <laughs> they need support they're like oh i can't get to my my virtual machine what, what? it seems like it might be a, a real support headache for for companies to to deal with that kind of a problem uh, that it is a support headache but if you're uh, a person that's got a background in that and you understand that companies are willing to pay your 80 to 150 dollars an hour whatever you charge you can uh, you can do very well. I, I personally built a a cloud type solution for a tractor dealership that sold Case IH tractors. In 1999, they had 64 serial type machines, like you see when you go to the uh, the salvage yards for looking up parts. I took them from that to a full terminal server with uh, Windows Domain Exchange Server, all four sites connected to each other over Internet VPN. And I trained all these parts guys that were, you know, farmers on how to uh, log into the terminal server either inside of work or from home on the weekends when somebody called looking for parts. You have to be very, very patient. You call them stupid, you know, that they're, you're going to turn them off. Uh, and they're not stupid. They're just not to the point you want them to be at yet. And if you just walk them through it, you build a little walkthrough, you show them how you do it, or... You offer to take that part over, and you got to almost go into their business and say, what do you do? Okay, you do accounting. You do accounting for what? What are the nuances I need to know? Because I will build something for you that will do this as long as I know what your business need is and what you're trying to do, and I'll help you succeed. Well, that's great, John. Uh, is there anything else you want to tell us about your company? We really appreciate you coming on our show here and 
and given our uh, listeners a little overview of what you guys are doing in cloud computing. It's it's been great. Uh, anything you want you want to say before we we head off to the conclusion? Uh, well, you know, we're still we're still pretty young. We're having uh, meetings, kind of like your podcast, two or three times a week where we're talking and getting ideas because we don't want to you know go out and fail. Uh, I would look for us probably in one to two months to be actually out there advertising, and we're willing to help anybody uh, be able to recover from any disaster. Yeah, great. I mean, it sounds like you guys are a very hands-on company who would be willing to work with businesses in the area who might not be prepared to go to, like, an Amazon solution or something that, who need uh, somebody they can call up and just ask some questions and somebody who they can rely on for good quality service there. So that's that's great. Yep, and I, uh, I appreciate you guys having me on, so thank you. <laughs> yeah, thanks, John. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, and ready for the conclusion? <laughs> yeah, all right, let's wrap this up. And uh, I thank all our listeners out there for tuning in. Um, if you have any short questions, you want to record them or type them up, you send them to rats at gmail.com. You can also find show notes on our website at disgruntledrats.com. And you can also friend us for a chance to win the Scrum Rats t-shirt. And if we made any mistakes or there's anything you want to share, product reviewed, feel free to email us also. And just think, thanks again, John, for coming on and, and sharing with us your insight on cloud computing. So stay tuned next time. Yeah, John, do you have any other contact information you want to throw out there for people who are interested in your services? email address? We do have a basic website set up at uh, www.breakwatersystems.com and then uh, my email is john at breakwatersystems.com and if you have any questions just let me know and I'll definitely get some information out to you as well as uh, give you uh, maybe a sit down conference uh, for no charge over what we can do and what we can do for your company. Very cool. Well great show guys. Thank you for listening to the Disgruntled Rats podcast. We hope you join us next time. Visit our website for more information at www.disgruntledrats.com.